This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Uh, my name's Eleanor Updale, and I have the huge joy of interviewing Patrick Gale tonight. It's just the usual housekeeping. You know what to do with your phones. Put them on silent, but if you need to live tweet, tweet live, but please don't irritate your neighbours with it. Um, Turn the clicky things off. Yeah. <laughs> there will be a signing afterwards in the big signing tent, which is diagonally opposite us here. And uh, Patrick would be very, very happy to continue talking to you then. Please let me get him there at the end of this session. Don't hold him up with talk, otherwise we'll have a lot of angry people in a late night queue. But let's get cracking on this wonderful book. Now, this is a book that's actually officially coming out tomorrow, isn't it? I think. Ish, yes. Yeah. I think it's and already out there in the wild. But, I, yeah. We will assume that most of you haven't read it uh, on that basis. And if you have, we want to know why and how. Um, I'm sure a lot of you will be familiar with Patrick's work. He's, I, I, I'm not going to go through it. It will come up during discussions. Um, but this is different from other books you've done, and certainly very different from the last one, A Place Called Winter, which many of you may know. And uh, th the main protagonist of this, we, it's, a, it's a time shift novel. We, we, we jump backwards and forwards yeah. between the present day and the 1970s. And if I tell you that the main character in it, I promise not to give you spoilers, but do no harm to tell you this, is a boy who's not only called Eustace, which is enough of a nail in his coffin, really, but he's also living in Western Supermare in the <laughs> 1970s. Um, Somebody has to. And uh, then, of course, being Patrick, we've got all the gay stuff coming in as well, 1970s gay stuff. So why Western Supermare? Oh, poor Western. I, I, it's all the fault of the library in Western. They invited me there to, to give a talk, and I'd never been. And I'm, I'm a very, very cautious traveller, so I always get to places hours before I need to. Um, and then I end up looking around and visiting graveyards and things. And I wandered around Western, and I thought, my God, this would be the world's worst place to have been a gay child, <laughs> um, especially in the 70s. And it, that idea wouldn't let go. In fact, that very night, I actually said to the, the audience at the talk, yeah, thank you for inviting me, and what a, a weird place. Because, well, I'm sure that uh, went down well. <laughs> well you, no, they did laughed. you sell any books? They laughed. <laughs> Western, Western, people in Western are quite proud of the fact that it's, it's one of the UK centres for psychiatric halfway housing, drug rehabilitation centres, and old people's homes. I mean, this is a town full of the lost. And children have that curious lack of lack of divide, I think. So they, they, they take everyone on face value. So I thought a child growing up surrounded by the, the lost and the damned would well, be affected and by it. And, and literally, in the case of Eustace, mm. because he's growing up in an old people's home. Explain yes. us that. We won't yes. tell you everything, but we will tell you something. Well, the, the thing about Western, we, you might not know, is that it's actually a rather beautiful Georgian town at its heart. And inevitably, a lot of the really lovely, larger Georgian houses have become old people's homes. Um, sort of wrecked with fly, fire doors and rather too many commodes <laughs> and unwise extensions and so on. And so I've, I know exactly the house where Eustace and his family live. And I imagine that his it was the, ha the family house and it would once have been a family house and that his father had distorted it to turn it into a home. By accident, really, the well, way these things happen. Maybe we um, could start... So I read, there's a tiny extract that would, that would explain 
And it's also such a treat to hear Patrick read. I had this wonderful experience. I was to interview Patrick about a place called Winter a year or so ago. And the book didn't turn up, so I had to buy a a download of the audio book, and it turned out to be you reading it. So the first time I met him, (laughs) I'd been in bed with him for about three days. And... uh, which is a very unusual experience. I hear that. Me. I hear that quite a lot. Um, you must too. You must too with Jim. People say, "Oh, I wake up with your husband." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, their house should have been lovely. It had spacious rooms, high ceilings, a pretty conservatory, and a calm, ferny garden. Several of the bedrooms, including his, had glimpses of the water. However, his father had turned it into one of the town's many old people's homes, so there was always a pervasive smell of cabbage water, or worse, and except in the deepest reaches of the night, rarely a half-hour went by without the ringing of a bell or the sounds of the demented elderly. Depending on the resident, these ranged from cackling merriment to naked anguish. Eustace was used to both smells and sounds, of course, since he had grown up there, and they were his normality. But they made him reluctant ever to bring boys from school home with him. Also, there was something about being a child in such a place that encouraged the old to be forever reaching out with hands or voices, so that to enter any of the public rooms was to feel prodded and challenged in ways he did not welcome. Apparently, the change to home with a big H had come about by degrees, Stealthy degrees, his mother said, implying that she had been hoodwinked into it. His father had grown up there in what had still been a pleasant, spacious family house. He was the youngest of four brothers, a crowded luxury Eustace found unimaginable. But three of the brothers had died in the war, and then his grandfather had died of grief, and Granny had taken to her room and lost the use of her legs. So she had needed someone to cook and clean and care for her. His parents had met somehow at a dance, Dad claimed, though that was as unimaginable as having brothers, and married, and her father, Grandpa, had needed help as well, as he was confused and used to having things done for him because of the army. So with two parents living with them and needing help, which was expensive, it made sense to take in a few other similarly needy residents carefully vetted because Granny had ferocious standards, even when confined to her room. And of course, this meant his mother did no cooking or cleaning, like other mothers, which was nice, but also meant they never knew what was for supper and had to live with the smells and noises. He had yet to master the art of making, or more complicatedly, keeping friends. Occasionally, though, a boy from St. Chad's had casually taken him back home, and Eustace had been struck each time by the relative silence and coziness of normal houses, their lack of bells, their compact sense of family. His lack of siblings left him feeling exposed and outnumbered. He felt oppressed by the need to behave well and unobtrusively at all times, and thought that, in principle, it would be good to have a brother or sister so that he could be childish sometimes. In fact, the lack of one meant he had never really learned how to play. At school, he would naturally gravitate to the nearest available adult, who would be unnerved or irritated by his interest, which did not win him the trust of other boys. 
Poor Eustace. Poor Eustace. Poor Eustace. Known as Tash at school. Yeah. Um, which is a lovely 1970s thing of, you know, how we all used to get these Yes, all these names got carved down. I was always Patrick, very firmly. <laughs> that business of growing up in an institution, uh, of course... Replied to you as well. Oh, totally. I, yeah, I was institutionalised before my birth, actually long before, because my mother was the daughter of a prison governor, and she married her father's new deputy when they were at Durham Prison. So she had grown up in prison. She was born at Wormwood Scrubs. I was born at Camp Hill on the Isle of Wight. <laughs> uh, make of that. And what then you, you lived will. in Wandsworth. Um, yes, and then we moved to my earliest memories are of Wandsworth Prison. Yeah. And we were there till I was six. Um, so, yes, I felt entirely... At, when I was sent to boarding school at seven, I thought, well, I know how this works. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just like home. <laughs> they ring bells and you get fed. <laughs> you know, it's it's yeah. just like, like, like prison. Yeah. And Eustace, then, we, we already accept that he is uh, not quite like other boys. And then, in various other ways, he's not quite like other boys, not least because he becomes passionately interested in music. Yes, his life, I was very keen to show the ways in which music can transform a child's life. Um, not just in the obvious way of giving them a new skill, but also in the way of teaching them resilience. Because classical music is all about failure. About 98.8% of the children who take up a classical instrument will fail. Um, and of those... Tiny, that tiny percentage you don't fail, most of them will fail to become a professional. I was going so to say, what's the definition of yeah, failure? In yeah, that well, well, it's just not, not being any good. And really. again, most of them are rubbish. Coming to you... The, par the parents in this room know this. Yeah. Most of your children will be rubbish, which is why <laughs> that rare child who isn't totally rubbish, mm -hmm. it is so exciting. It's, it's, it, I suppose it's like being a, a child gymnast and suddenly discovering that you can do that amazing thing on the the horse with your legs going round yes. and round and when all the others have fallen off. Um, I, I think it is, if you're a shy child and you discover you have that thing, it is transformative. And you and yourself had that thing, didn't uh, you? To a, to a modest extent, yes. I, uh, uh, younger than Eustace is when we first meet him. When I was seven, a music teacher at my prep school discovered I could sing and I could sing in tune and I could go quite high um, without kind of sounding like a bat. And sent me for audition with my parents' blessing because they had no money because they'd put three children through school and the mm. fourth one they were worried. <laughs> um, and amazingly, I landed this music scholarship which got me free education at least until I was 13 and then there were more hoops to jump through. And in um, Eustace's case, <clears throat> the instrument is not the voice but the cello. Yes, now yes. And I, I, I was lucky enough, as I say, to get into this choir school and the amazing thing with the particular music scholarships that 16 of us got was that not only did we sing all the time, but we were taught two instruments free of charge by amazing teachers. So Eustace has, he doesn't get a scholarship, but he does, he is handed a cello as I was mm. handed a cello. And it's like, for him, it's like coming home. And his teacher, just as my teacher did, um, with a very home, I was a really desperately homesick child at this point when she met me. Um, she said, this, this will be your friend. Mm -hmm. And if you treat him right, you know, he will be with you forever. And um, we'll go in tearing up remembering it. Yeah. But it yeah. No, but I tried to catch that sense that from the moment he has the first, like he's, he's, had, he's tried to learn the clarinet, yeah, which was a dismal failure with an awful man. 
Um, well, very and, awful. Well, man. very awful man who's sent to prison, funnily enough, which is why he can't teach him the clarinet anymore. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so sweetly, Eustace is a bit put out that he was never assaulted. Yes, because he hears <laughs> the older boys that this clarinet teacher was sent away because he was a kiddie fiddler, as they called it in the 70s. And immediately, in a very useless way, thinks, well, why did he never fiddle me? What, yes. what was wrong with, with me, me yeah. that I didn't even get his interest? Um, but then he meets Carla Gold, this wonderful cello teacher who changes his life and changes other lives as well, but we mustn't give away too we much. We mustn't of the give plot. away too much. I think we ca- what we can give away is the fact that there is a great deal in this book about playing the cello, learning the cello, practicing the cello. Uh-huh. Yeah. and about cello music. Yes, cello in this book is what agriculture was in a place called Winter. And I, <laughs> just as with a place called Winter, I had to remove about 70% of it because there was f- far too much in the first draft. I think if you'd read my first draft, you probably could have got grade five cello without <laughs> any lessons. Well, I did feel, <laughs> I felt as if I'd have a good old stab at it, actually, yeah, after that. And, yeah. But I was a bit worried about prospects for the thumb. You, you, yes, well, the working title of the book was Thumb Position. And in my innocence, I thought, this is fine. This is what cellists all learn. And um, the all-female team at my publishers just said, you can't call it that. People will think it's about sex. And uh, they've ruined thumb position for me now. I, I th- yeah. It sounds rather dodgy. But, um, <laughs> but the fact that I called it that, it, it goes to the heart of what the story is really about. Because, uh, yes, it's about music, but it's also about the gaining of resilience and the embracing of pain. Mm. And thumb position, when you learn it as a child... Let me quickly explain. Quick cello lesson, OK? You're holding a cello... Half position, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, is when you have your thumb still behind the cello and your fingers reach over. Thumb position is the magical moment. It's like your broomstick taking off in Harry Potter when your thumb comes out and you go down here. And when you're a child and you're asked to press your thumb down hard onto what are basically cheese wires and then slide it up and down, it hurts. It really hurts. But it's an exciting moment. It's like that moment children learning ballet have when they finally go up onto their points, onto their blocks or whatever you call them. And you know, we've all read Noel Stretfield. We love, we secretly love the idea of the ballet shoes filling with blood. Um, <laughs> and I remember, I remember this acutely. And my cello teacher gave me a little bottle of Terps and said, rub this on your thumb and it'll Make help it you hard. get a pad. You can feel now I've got quite a pad well, do, now. I was going to say, um, do you, do you, yes? Yeah. Uh, do you, play now? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. How often? Every day if Every I'm, if I'm, when day. I'm at home. Absolutely. Mm. It's my, along with gardening, um, what, it's my, my what's thing. What's your repertoire? Um, it, it's entirely accidental. It depends. I play with a local orchestra, so whatever we're learning in the orchestra. I'm on the committee, so I guide that a bit. But it, so they'll, they'll usually, I'm currently learning Vaughan Williams' Fifth Symphony, um, which is bloody hard. The scherzo is really, really hard. Um, but I also do chamber music, and I also play the Baroque cello. Mm-hmm. So I have... Um, when the first time I was lucky enough to get picked by Richard and Judy with notes from an exhibition, it paid for my first ever office. I have an office in the garden. But it also paid for a Baroque cello to be made for me, which is just wonderful. Made um, by whom? Um, a luthier in Winchester, where I grew up. Um, and it's, uh, so it's, it's, I call it the Richard and Judy cello. And do you just um, keep it at home, or do you take it round with you and buy it airline seats? And no, like that no, no, I'm not that grand. I only ever play in Penzance. I, I, n- <laughs> I never play across the Tamar. <laughs> But your <coughs> joy in it, it's not just your knowledge of the cello, it is your um, affection for it comes through in yeah, this book. Well, it's a friend. So it's a friend. But also I hope what comes across is that thing William Golding spotted, which is that if you train children young enough in music, it gives them a quite scary bit of 
backbone. Do you think that means the rest of us missed the boat? And could yeah. it, no point in learning there's now. No, there's no catching up. There's yeah. no catching up. I think, I think it's the same with gymnastics, it's the same with ballet, but the difference is with gymnastics and ballet, they have to give up because their bodies give yes. up. The, the, the joy of learning any instrument or singing up to a certain level when you're young enough is it is like riding a bicycle. Because mm. I stopped my cello I, when I was a, a student. I was convinced I was going to be an actor and I needed the money and so I sold my beautiful, beautiful <gasps> cello and I didn't play for 20 years. And then I moved to Penzance, and a wonderful cello teacher down there um, got chatting to me after a concert and could see I was pining. We'd been mm. watching this wonderful string quartet playing. And he said, Look, I'll, I'll lend you one of mine. It's fine, I'll lend you to see. And he gave me two lessons, and it, came, it all came back because I'd had such good lessons as a child. And without um, going into what's in the book, how much of that experience, this business of it being certain people who will... Just sometimes by mistake, sometimes mm. just by happenstance, um, pull you round in life into something. There, well, there are key. Most of the book is made up, but there, at the heart of it is the most amazing cello teacher, who in the book is called Jean Kerwin. In real life, she lived very near here in Duns, in um, near Ed, well, a, pl- yes. a little village called Edrum. Edrum was the name of the house in a place called Duns, and her name was Jane, Jane Cowan. And she ran the International Cello Center. She was taught by Casals, the great Pablo Casals. And she was effectively my, my grand cello teacher because she taught, but both two of my teachers were taught by her. And in the book, um, there's a, interestingly, almost very similar name, Kerwin. Isn't Jean, it? Kerwin. Jean Kerwin. I, because her, her children are still alive, I, I didn't. I couldn't yes. put her in whole meal, but, but, I, but I wanted to... But she's a bit of a monster as well. I think great teachers are often slightly monstrous, but I wanted her to be... She, the, the version of her in the book is very, it's very close. To, I mean, her daughter, one of her daughters has read the sections of the book. I made sure she did first yeah. to check it was defensive, and she said, oh, no, that's But some of the things mum. she makes the children um, do, not so much in the actual playing of the cello, but in the... She does these sort of, like, boot camps, doesn't yeah. she? Yeah. Um, I mean, I should explain, Jane, Jane ran the cello centre primarily for her um, teenage, full-time students, like Stephen Isselis, who's our most famous um, pupil, ex-pupil, and they would live, live there and do, do almost nothing but cello. They'd, do a bit of, they, they'd somehow get A-levels, and she'd find people to teach them A-levels in sort of history of art, maybe, in German, because that mm. was useful. You couldn't do maths or physics or anything with her. Mm. But she, one of the ways she funded this very cannily was to run twice a year residential courses for much younger children, mm. so 12 to 14-year-olds. And I went on two of those. And Eustace and, goes on And the Eustace equivalent. goes on them. And just like I did, Eustace goes and falls Eustace completely... Under her spell and wants to be, <laughs> wants to be you know, one of her full-time students. Yes. And one of the things Jane taught us, was quite, quite apart from the things she taught us about music, was that even if you didn't, weren't lucky enough to be picked, if you weren't in the 2.2%, um, it would still have transformed your life. And I have a scene, I've borrowed from my, a scene with one of my piano teachers in real life and I've given it to her. Alter ego in yeah, the book. Yeah, we mustn't say too much no, about no, no, that, in my no, humble opinion. No, we okay, want people to right, buy this right, book. okay, okay, okay. Um, but yes, it's it's. Um, we're, we're speaking almost as if this is a book about a small child, which of course it isn't. In fact, when we first meet Eustace, he's in his fifty 50s. something. He's my age. Yes, yes. and funnily enough, just to add <laughs> on everything we've had, not only Western Superman, not only is he called 
Eustace, but he's got an acute medical crisis. Yeah, when we first meet him in, in, in one fell swoop, as you learn in almost the first sentence of the book, um, he discovers... Actually, read the first sentence. Such yeah. a good first sentence. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. If you don't it's, want to buy the book after <laughs> this. <laughs> it's a very short first sentence. Um, at an age when he was reassured that life was unlikely to surprise him any further, Eustace found in rapid succession that he was quite possibly dying and that he was falling in love for the third time. Isn't that good? So, um, <laughs> so yeah, he's, he, he's got cancer. Mm. Um, and this is where the title of the book comes, because he has cancer of the thyroid. And the amazing way they treat thyroid cancer is with radioactive iodine, which you have just one big pill, uh, but it's given to you in a lead-lined room. And you have to spend up to 24 hours, sometimes 48 hours if it were a big dose, in this lead-lined room. And you can take nothing into the room with you that you don't mind leaving behind. And two of my friends in quick succession had this treatment. And the author in me just thought, well, I'm very sorry for the friends, but the author, <laughs> the author in me thought, this is such a good metaphor. I can't yes. let this one go. Yeah. And so another working title for the book, which I abandoned because it sounded like a Val McDermott novel, Hello Val, if you're here, um, <laughs> was The Lead-Lined Room. Because mm. I just had this, this love. And I got a doctor to show me a lead-lined room and to shut me in one. And to, you know, this heavy door that yes. closes, thunk, and, and you're in there. Oh, um, do you think we can uh, say what he does take? I think we can say what he does yes, take into the yes. room. Yes, yes. So he... On the courses Eustace goes to with, in Scotland, he makes a friend for life, though he doesn't rediscover her until quite later. And she is one of the lucky ones who becomes a professional cellist. And when he goes into hospital, she is the best mate who takes him along. And just as she's saying goodbye, she hands him a little MP3 player, a little cheapy MP3 player, and it's got nothing on it but cello music, and like a typical professional, of course, she can't bear anyone else's recordings, <laughs> so it's all her. <laughs> but, but he doesn't mind, because she's a brilliant player, and of course he lies there in bed listening mm. to this music, which it's his Proustian soundtrack, and it takes him back, not only to Western, but also to more recent things, like yes. visiting his mother in, in an old people's well, home and so on. you know, now we've mentioned Naomi, the cellist, and you've mentioned his, his mother more than once. One of the striking things about this book is how stonking wonderful the women are in it. I mean, oh, I, don't mean I don't mean as um, women. They're, some of them are pretty awful, but I mean as, even the awful as ones are interesting. written creations. I hope. I think um. you write so well about women, which in some ways one wouldn't really expect. <laughs> well, uh, I'm always baffled. People often say, ask this sort of question, and I, I'm always slightly baffled by it, because I think, well, you can't be a writer and only write about half the well, population. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as to writing well, I don't know. I... I if I it think works, you get his mother's if it works, it's so because well. I make no allowances for their yes. gender. They've just got to be rounded yes. people. Oh, well, I think this is you. And really I was raised yourself. by the most formidable triumvirate of women, and my my mother and my older sister, who's a terrifyingly a professor of cognitive epidemiology here at the university, and my grandmother, my mother's mother, and all three of them, in their way, have their counterparts mm. in this this book. This really. Um, painful disappointment that appears to drive Eustace's mother. Is that from any of those three? Oh, it's from my mother. My God. I mean, my, my mother, now dead, and she, it'll take six books at least to work her out of my system. Um, <laughs> poor thing. She thought she was every mother I ever wrote, and she didn't realize I was just waiting. Um, <laughs> um, but... One, one of the things I really wanted to reflect in, in Eustace's mother, which she shares with my mother, is that frustration common to that generation. So many women of that generation were 
cruelly undereducated because they were women and they had the brain and they just they kind of self-edited and my mother my mother took herself out of education because she'd overheard her parents complaining about the cost of schooling um, so she pretended she was happy to leave school. She wasn't. She was desperate mm. to go to university and would have done really well. And the fantastic and, but it left her, her But it left her angry and frustrated and hugely dynamic as a mother because, my God, she was living a second life through all of us. And she read every book we had to read at school. And you know, she, she basically did A-level English with me, even though she didn't sit the, exa sit the exams. Um, so Eustace's mother is... She's got all that, that rather terrifying anger and pent-up frustration. And, and, you know, and, he doesn't, and I think, you read in between the lines, she's a bit bipolar. You know, she has, we hear very early on she has lots of bad headaches, which means she goes to her room and she's just cross and lying in the dark all day. Well, she's but, married to that awful yeah. man. Oh, he's too. not awful. He's, oh. Just, oh, he's lovely. He's lovely. He's just, they're just mismatched. They're just desperately mismatched. Desperately mismatched, um, yes. I'll, I'll let you and, and the other thing about her is, she, you know, she does, I give her, which I, my mother never had as far as I know, I give her a passionate love affair yes. in which Eustace, and this isn't giving away too much plot. Um, I'll stop you. One of the reasons he's called Eustace is this novel is, is it's partly a homage to Noel Stretfield's masterpiece, Ballet Shoes, but it's also a homage to L.P. Hartley's The Go-Between. Go the difference being that the little boy in The Go-Between knows that he's carrying love letters. I mean, he, he kind of, he twigs. Mm. And, and in a very disturbing way, he kind of gets stitched into the love of the, the kind of illicit love affair. Eustace is different. Yeah, Eustace retains his innocence. But what, in a way, the tragedy of the book is that Eustace doesn't know that the very thing that's transforming his life is also transforming his mother's life in a way that will shake the family to the core. Mm. But you have to read the book. You do out. have to read it, though. We, we can't... <laughs> We can't unpick that. But we could much. talk. We could talk a bit about the way Naomi, because I've just hinted in that first sentence that oh. Eustace, old grown-up Eustace, falls in love. Yes. Um, and I borrowed this. I borrowed this in part from something that was happening to some friends of mine. And again, it's like the lead-lined room. I I'm never get close to novelists because we're cannibals, basically. I, I mm. this started happening to some friends, and I just immediately said, "Well, can I borrow this? It's so amazing. I, I don't care if you don't stay together anymore, but I want this." <laughs> um, and basically what had happened is that, this, that these friends had fallen in love through an app. And they, they hadn't met, um, but they were having weekly dinner dates and things. Shall I read you just a little bit? Yes. Because Naomi, the cellist friend, changes his life, changes well, Eustace's better, life. Well, you better say that... How? I think you, what? You better Which? say that... Eustace is already bereaved at this yeah, point. Yeah, when we meet him, he's already had a very... you know that on page yeah, one, so you're not... Sentence one, we know he's been in love twice before. Um, and, and what Naomi does, because she doesn't like boyfriend number two. Boyfriend number one is a serious boyfriend and, and leaves him, dies from AIDS. And like a lot of my generation, Eustace has gone through many bereavements uh, through, through HIV and so on. Um, but then boyfriend number two is a disaster Horrible. and Naomi can't bear him. And Naomi cannot bear that Eustace is, is missing boyfriend number two. So she goads him into signing up for a, a gay dating app. Um, but it has an unexpected effect because he meets, he meets this chap. Um, where to start? Sorry, you're my virgin audience, so I have to decide what to say. Okay. Theo spent several days after that pretending he wasn't really a roughy-tufty soldier at all, but the company's cook, whose pride and joy was his cake decorating and pastry making. 
He sent photographs of a succession of birthday cakes for the officers and men, each camper than the last, each bravely greeted by Eustace with another compliment. Finally, he confessed that the pictures had been random finds off Google to test and alarm. He was actually a fairly senior officer doing something clandestine. There was sand, though, and date palms, and once a glimpse of spectacular ruins that looked like but couldn't have been Palmyra. He also admitted he had landed his job because of his two degrees in Arabic. At this point, they stepped away from the app and onto Skype because Eustace pretended not to believe him about the Arabic. Goaded to prove it, Theo chatted away in a surprisingly deep voice while shaving topless and driving Eustace wild by refusing to speak a word of English before grinning, reaching out to the shelf above his sink with a soapy finger and hanging up. It was a short step to texting one another images or bulletins from their wildly contrasting days. Eustace introduced Theo to his whippet, Joyce, to his cello, to Kensington Gardens, and to the assembling ladies of the orchestra's cello section, in exchange for meeting a tank full of sweaty squaddies, a scorpion, and a full moon reflected in an oasis. Then Theo happened to Skype while Eustace was having supper, and amused, went to fetch his own tray of food and can of Coke. And so they slipped into the comforting habit of weekly supper dates. They made a point not only of regularly eating together, but downloading the same books to read, or, when army broadband permitted, watching the same television programme simultaneously, Eustace on the sofa with Joyce, Theo sprawled on his bunk. The move from text to video allowed Eustace to latch onto and collect the little imperfections which only made Theo more endearing, the small chip off one of his incisors, the way his thick eyebrows didn't quite match, a slight tendency to stutter when he was excited, as though his thoughts outran his tongue, and the intimacy of their conversations threw up intriguing parallels between them, less than perfect childhoods, an unfashionable tendency towards monogamy, a belief that dogs were sent to teach us how to love. Eustace dreaded him, ringing him, dreaded ringing him at a bad moment. You mean with bullets flying? I hate to tell you, but I probably wouldn't answer. That's even worse. Now if I ring and you don't answer, I'll be thinking IED. So they agreed Eustace could text whenever he liked, but that Theo would initiate all calls, as his life was more complicated. Because they had deleted what Theo called the app of doom and become roundedly human to one another by talking rather than texting, they resisted doing the usual sordid, appy things like beating off in unison. Although, thanks to a waterproof cover on Theo's tablet and a cunning suction pad Eustace found for his, they did take a couple of showers together. <laughs> for the most part, they talked, as any new lovers must, They told their stories. Eustace learned that Theo was teetotal because his parents were drunks and confided in turn that his relationship with Gwyn had verged on the abusive and that his one with his mother wasn't straightforward either. They laid tentative, then increasingly definite plans for Theo's next home leave, which was in four months. Naomi demanded details, of course, encouraging him at every turn and brushing aside any doubts he expressed with characteristic pronouncements. 
prudery at our age is as unconvincing as home dye jobs, was one. You're scared he might rearrange your tidy life, was another. Her final pronouncement, after she had been briefly introduced to Theo at the start of a Skype call before coming over all girlish and making a hasty exit, was that this latest twist in his life story was almost unbearably sweet. If I'm honest, I only got you on the app to get you some healthy rumpy-pumpy to help you forget Gwyn. Only you could dive into a lake of pure sex and come up like, like some Labrador with something so bloody wholesome. <laughs> um, That's lovely. Are, are you doing an audio book of that this I've one? I've done it. You've done, you, has it I've come done out it. Yet? It's available this week. I oh, think. right. Yeah. Well, you know, yes. I do reckon. This is a nightmare now. All these so electronic well. editions become available on the same day as the hardback which undercuts our chance of getting onto the bestseller list, but never oh, mind. Oh, well, I'm sure you, you guys... <laughs> Buy the hardback too, and I forgive you. Uh, you. You wrote this after doing a television screenplay uh -huh. for Man, Man in the Man Orange, in an orange shirt. shirt. Yeah. Um, did you find that the way you wrote was different because you'd been doing a screenplay? Interesting. Um, no, because actually what a lot of people don't realise is that I've been writing screenplays a long time, just none of them were made. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I've always been a very cinematic writer. Um, when it's I'm flashback, flash forward. And well, all not that, just that, so. but actually when I'm, when I'm writing a novel, um, I don't start the actual writing until I've got it so much in my head that it's like a, an artificially implanted so memory. Yes. And when I'm doing the actual writing, I'm seeing it in my head really clearly, and I can I can change the camera so it, angles. It would make and, and a wonderful film. I th am I? Yeah, I'm This should be a film, not television. I think it's it's got that that quality to it. Um, but I'm adapting uh, a place called Winter for television at the moment, which is such fun because I get to go back and do put in all the scenes that weren't in the book. <laughs> like kind of ghastly sex on the honeymoon and things like that, which, which weren't in the book. Um, but and also, crucially, it means I can give... Who are you give, doing that for? I'm doing this for the BBC and Blueprint, who are the company behind Six Billboards outside Ebbing, and, and also the Jeremy Thorpe show yes. uh, more recently. So, so the BBC we're in, they're them. in the lovely position of having lots of Hollywood wanting to work with them. Yes. So we're aiming very high, and the actors... And do you, am I allowed to ask um, you who you've got in mind, or no? I, I don't jinx it. No. I don't want to jinx it. But you're but, um, happy with I'm, the I'm, ideas. I'm very happy with the ideas. And the, but the thing I really love, going back to your point about women, the thing I'm, I'm loving about adapting for television, I, I've been very greedy and I've said I want four hour-long episodes um, because I want each episode to focus on a different one of the four heroines. And so Eustace is... Not Eustace, I'm muddling up my heroes now. Um, <laughs> Harry. Harry's, Harry's education, <laughs> which is at the hands of the four yes. women in his life, will lead you through the four episodes. And there'll be four different settings as well. So each episode will be like a, a little mini, a li like a feature film. And you're going to have a, a walk-on part like Hitchcock. You know, you're going to have... Well, I keep trying and they keep cutting them out. <laughs> so I, I, was, I was going to be my great-great-grandmother's... Um, best friend's husband, who's the village priest. And that dinner party's already been cut, so I've got to work ahead and write myself. I want to write myself into a Canadian scene, because I want to yeah, go to Canada. Yeah, that would be crew. nice, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah. Yes. Maybe I can be the priest in winter. I think I've got to be a priest. I've got the hair for it now. So, yeah. Well, I never. <laughs> right, now I think the time's probably come for me to open it up to you guys. Um, we can hardly see you, so do wave hard, and there will be microphones coming. 
So if anyone can see someone with it, I can see now. There's yes, there's one right here. down here. Does this get recorded or can we be indiscreet? It's just nice, just nice to let's know it, beforehand. Let's imagine it doesn't okay. get recorded. Okay. It's being, <laughs> if there I, didn't, are I didn't sign a release listen, form. If, so if it's being you. recorded, if being tweeted, I think you've already been indiscreet. <laughs> yes, please. Um, obviously, I haven't read it yet. But I'm really looking forward to it. The way that you talk about it in this mixture of uh, something very intense and very musical makes me think of An Equal Music by Vikram Seth, and uh -huh. I wondered whether that was something you'd thought about. It, it wasn't an influence. I, I love Vikram's books, but that, that book is... Uh, uh, an Equal Music is what, another novel that's written very much with an insider's eye, because uh, Vikram's other half was in a string quartet, and I think, I think it has the sense of hard work about it. Um, I think a lot of people who don't play an instrument think of it as being an endless rhapsody. And I wanted to show, actually, it's, it's endless repetition. And um, one, of the, one of Eustace's breakthrough moments on the cello is when he realizes that whereas he gets bored out of his mind in school, in class, he can quite happily play the same phrase 170 times in a row and not be bored. And that, that's when he realizes this is his, his language. Um, but it's very interesting, actually, you, when you start writing a novel about a certain thing, whether it's agriculture or the cello, you immediately start noticing the other ones. They pop up. Mm. And, and I really look forward to readers saying, oh, you should read this one. This is a really good book about music, you know. Um, <laughs> I'm quite surprised that you say that, because I think it could be very daunting. And, and, and I, I can see an argument for shutting yourself off from the ones that Well, the trick is not to read them good. when you're writing. Yeah. I, I look forward to finding them out afterwards. Mm. Um, I mean, God, when I wrote notes from exhibition, I was inundated with reading lists about books about mental illness after mm. that, which are mostly fascinating, and I'm still working my way through the pile. Mm. Um, and books about Canada, you know, it, it happens. Um, it's right. sort of the reader's revenge. <laughs> <laughs> Who's next? I can't oh, believe you're shy. There's no. one over here. Could you wait for the, wait for the mic, it's please? It's just behind you, it's just coming, coming around. She's it's racing It's such you. a circuit here. What you guys can't see is it's this sort of like... Le Mans, uh, could you describe a day that you are writing? What happens during that day? A typical writing day? Yeah. Not a lot, really. I, I, <laughs> I, I walk the dogs, first thing. That's very much the... The, the dogs are very important to me. I'm not just as you know, teach fellow beings. Love. But it's, <laughs> it's during the walk. It's while walking and not actually being at my mm. desk. I, I limber up. Do you think it's the and, rhythm and of the walking? I think it's well, oxygenating is good, but I, I do. I, funnily enough, I've, I've just been interviewed this afternoon for an amazing academic project that's going on, a huge multidisciplinary project based at a university here to do with writers' internal voices. And while talking to the interviewers, I realized that I do this. I, I have these long, they're not conversations with myself. They're often conversations between two of the characters, or I'm interrogating the characters, and I'll often do that while walking. I then try to work from nine until I get so hungry I have to stop at about one or two. Um, and I write in longhand. Um, I forgot to take it out of my bag, it's at the back here, but I actually brought along as proof the manuscript for this book, because I, I write in ink, um, which is very old-fashioned, but it, it suits me. I like the speed of ink. I like to see my crossings out. I like to see my workings. And if I'm having a bad morning, if nothing is coming, I can flip the book over because I write from two directions at once. So one side of the notebook is the book that's emerging, the actual something like the finished prose. But the other side is what George Eliot called her quarry. 
and that works very well for me. That's where I develop my characters. It's where I put ideas that occur to me in the middle of nothing that just, just might work later. Um, it's where I put working titles and things. So if I'm having a bad day, I can flip the notebook over and just look at my notes and remind myself. And sometimes there's nothing like seeing just how far the existing novel has progressed from your initial idea to give you a third idea as to where it should go. Um, so I don't often get writer's block, but I often have days where I read all day. Um, and that's fine. It's, it's writing of a sort. Um, you do a lot of other things too, of course. I mean, you've well, gardening and Patrick playing runs the, the, cello the and North Cornwall book Well, festival. I'm the artistic director. I've now handed over the chairmanship to a very capable woman who can do it much better than me. But yes, I, I, I run a book festival, um, which is a... Although it only takes four days, the festival, the planning and the liaison and the, cheer, the, the coaxing takes most of the year. Um, and I also now run the Penzance Orchestral Society, which also is a diplomatic minefield. Um, yeah. yeah. There's uh, a novel in that. I'm yeah. Try, sure. try persuading a, a, a geriatric viol violinist that actually they do less damage in the viola section. It's quite hard. And also, you live on more or less the last farm in England. Last farm in England. It is the last farm in England. Yeah, we right live right down the end. So it's a working farm. My husband is the, the, the farmer, and I'm the unpaid help. And uh, depending on the time of year, there's often farming work to be done. So sometimes I have to stop. He'll come and bang on the door and say, you know, I need, I need you. And what and are you we'll good at on the farm? Then? I'm very good with the cattle. Um, yes. I'm completely fearless with very large animals. So I... I which, interestingly, he and his father are not. I've noticed, I don't tease them about it, but I've noticed they're a little bit nervous. So I'm, I'm the one who gets into the pen with the cattle. It's and probably and from growing up in through. Wandsworth Prison. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Well, and I rode as a child, and I think if you're, if you're horse mad quite early on, you actually have this love. I love really big animals, so you know, they, don't, they don't worry me at all. And I got a very early lesson. And uh, do you remember that film, the Ken Russell film of Women in Love? Mm -hmm. And there's a scene in that where Glenda Jackson stops some stampeding um, steers by holding up her fist and going, yeah! Mm -hmm. And it does work. And I, you know, I, I just, it's if like, all else fails, I just channel Glenda. It's like the petticoats in, um, <laughs> in the railway, oh, the railway children. children. Yes, that wouldn't yes. work with a cattle. No. Red petticoats would get them yes. very excited. Why do it? Yes. <laughs> So yes, to, to finish answering your question, the I then hit the afternoon, which is the mental doldrums, where I will, I will do admin and read. And then if I'm lucky and I've got nothing on the, in the evening, I'll start writing again about five o'clock. And five until the drinks hour, five until about seven, seven thirty. If you live with a farmer, the, the yard arm is a lot later than it is <laughs> in most households, because um, he doesn't come indoors until then. So that, that's a magical time. I often do my best work early evening. Um, Do you ever work through the night? Oh, I wish. No, I did. I mean, with this book, I, 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 I treated myself to a writing retreat, which was amazing. Where Just a week. Um, the Arvon Centre in Shropshire, in John, what's his name there? Who wrote, who wrote Look Back in Anger? John Osborne's mm. old house, which is a wonderful writing centre. They've converted the stable block into a, a sort of cottage for visiting mm. authors. And I was teaching there for a week, so I booked myself a week beforehand. And quite by chance, it was wonderful. There were no other writers staying, mm. so I had the whole place to myself. No conversation at all. They fill the fridge before you come mm. with delicious homemade food. So you don't actually need to speak to a soul for a week, and you can write at any hour you like. And I did. I wrote until kind of two, three in the morning mm. most nights. And every novel has the same pattern towards the end of the first draft. 
it suddenly snowballs and I can't stop. And How do you that, cope that when, so when you get to this stage? This mm. novel's back from its gap year and, <laughs> yeah. and, and you're going to be publicising this now mm. for some time. Does that switch off? The, the sort of transmitter, the writing? you know? No, funnily enough, because I think every novel, certainly in my writing pattern, every novel needs a year of what I think of as this compost. Mm. The idea just has to sit and quietly gather bacteria, useful bacteria, friendly bacteria, as the advert calls it, and grow in that way. And I know, I actually know what my next two novels are going to be. Really? You're going um, to tell us? No, don't jinx it. Don't no, I won't ahead. jinx it. Um, it's in the public domain that the, the next one will... They're both going to be period. They're both going to be um, historical, but mm, 20th century historical. And the next one is based very loosely around... I'm still researching it, but it's to do with Charles Causley and his mm. mother. I'm fascinated by this. Those of you who don't know Causley, wonderful poet very overshadowed in Cornwall by John Betjeman, who was not Cornish. He was an incomer, whereas Causley was proper Cornish. Um, and Causley did this fascinating thing, which is that he went away to the Merchant Navy as a young, as a teenager, and kind of did all his living in about four years. So he got caught up in the Second World War, and then came back to Launceston, came back to his mother, lived with his mother until her dying day, which was a long time, because she lived a long time, um, and apparently had no emotional entanglements for a very long time. He was just a wonderful village schoolmaster. So he taught, well, a town schoolmaster. He was, he was the headmaster of the primary school by the time he retired. Um, changed all these children's lives, transformed them with poetry. But what fascinates me is that reading his poems, you can see he's constantly looking over his shoulder. All his emotional formative nuggets come from those years before he came back to mum. And it sounds like a really depressing book, doesn't it? <laughs> Don't worry, it won't be. It won't be. But, but I'm fascinated by that, especially because as I'm, I was briefly a trustee and I'm now a patron of the Charles Causley Trust, I get tipped off um, by people who are in the know. And I know, I've been told, there are some really passionate love letters tucked away in the archive, which have never been published. Um, so I'm, the moment this publicity is done, I will be going to the... Exeter University archive and digging out however mild the dirt on Horsley to see where um, it takes me. You're very careful in your novels, though, not to completely replicate a, a real person. That's, yeah, that's, the that's the biographer's job, and I'm not a biographer. Yes, but this is going to be a novel about Causley. And I probably won't call him Causley, yeah, actually. At this stage, it'll, he'll be, at the moment in my head, he's just the poet and his mother. And I'm borrowing the apparatus of Causley's life and I'll go and stay in Causley's house, which the Trust owns. It's a tiny little house where he and his mother lived, so I can get a real sense of just how... They was, but I mean, it will be a work tiny, of fiction. But it will be a work of fiction. So people who know Causley's work will recognise elements of it, just as people who know my mother will recognise bits of her. Yeah. Um, but then it which won't. Bits? And my, my sister, who I'm very close to, uh, loves reading my books, but she says she knows she gets a, a different pleasure to them from... Anyone else who reads them, because she, as an intimate who had the same childhood as me, recognises these little flashes from our lives mm. which, which creep into the books, often without me noticing them. She'll remind me, she'll say, um, but this was that awful cottage where we stayed yeah. when we were 12 or whatever, and I've forgotten. And it's just um, all gone in but there. But it's gone and in and come out wasted. in the mix. Is there ever any offence caused? 
The only offence, the nearest I've got to offence, was with my sister and my brother when Man in Orange Shirt came out. And I was very, very naughty. I've admitted to them I was very naughty. I didn't get purr. I just wrote it. And they knew it was vaguely based on our parents' marriage. But what they, and they thought they were okay with that, but what they weren't ready for was the publicity. Yes. Because television reaches such a huge audience compared to literary fiction that the publicity is incrementally bigger. Mm. And suddenly there were you know, national newspapers wanting to out, well, it was out an my father. In case anyone here doesn't know the story, it's the most extraordinary it was, story. It was an extraordinary story. My mother, when she was pregnant with me, so 12 years into her marriage, we were moving from Camp Hill Prison on the Isle of Wight to Wandsworth Prison, and she rashly and bossily, which was totally in character, tidied my father's desk and found a stash of love letters. And she knew there were love letters because she saw on the top of the first one, Darling Michael, and she thought, oh, what fun. It's a, a girlfriend he's never mentioned because he claimed never to have had any, any involvements. Then she read them and found they were all from his best man, who had been the godfather to my sister, who was the eldest, and my father had been his best man and godfather to his eldest. And she never told my father that she'd read the letters. She burnt them because she was terrified he'd be arrested and sent to prison. She told me when I was 21, she told one of my brothers when he was about 18, um, she never told my father that she knew. And the most damaging and the saddest thing was that because her generation were pretty innocent, she assumed he was a paedophile as well mm. and that he wasn't safe with children. So I never, ever, I have no memories of being alone with my father till I was a teenager and finally used to meet him at breakfast because he'd retired. Um, which is very sad. We became very close after she told me all this. But what I wanted to do with Man in Orange Shirt was to do a typical novelistic thing, which was to take that raw material and change it. So what I did was to imagine what would have happened if she had told him, mm. if she had said, what the hell are these, and had the flaming row. Because I know they wouldn't have divorced, because their sort mm. didn't. And you've they would no, have reached a hideous no compromise. That this was true, that she, there were letters and true. she did burn them. I, she was so weird because she told me all this stuff and then kind of having unburdened herself, never referred to it again. So I, I really doubted my own memory until um, after she died and I, I quizzed my older brother about it. I you know, pro prodded him and he said, oh, yes, she told me. And she never told me that she told him. And she told him in a different way. She was a way. piece of work, wasn't Oh, she, she? was. Because the, <laughs> the way she told him was to say, darling, you know, my marriage has been terrible. <laughs> The way she told me was to say, darling, I know you think you're gay, but then you know, look what I did for your father. Because she thought she cured him. Oh my goodness. She thought that I might yet meet yes. a good Christian woman who would burn all my love letters and bear me children. Um, that was the real horror well, story. Uh, which, um, again, no spoilers. No spoilers. But that's no, no. not been wasted yeah, in this book. Yeah, and yeah. Also, actually, one thing we haven't mentioned, I think we can without spoiling the book. There's some really smashing stuff in this book about... 1970s boys discovering sex. Well, that, that lesson in the book is a real lesson. <laughs> I, I, Eustace, when he's about to leave his prep school, so he's 13, suddenly, with no warning at all, his form master comes in and says, today, boys, we are putting aside our school books and we are going to do a little course called How to Succeed as a Teenager. And I did that course and I found, I actually, well, I hadn't planned this, but while writing the book, I found the school exercise book in which I'd solemnly written How to Succeed as a Teenager, <laughs> underlined it twice, 
and then been so blown away by what followed, I didn't write anything. <laughs> I just had the heading. Um, but I remembered the lesson. It all yes. came back. Yeah. Yeah. Complete, complete with the, um, the, the carefully, carefully, um, uh, what do you call it, laminated pages <laughs> from Paul Mags, which the master handed round. God, they couldn't do that now. No. But, you know, yeah. And there's the, also, the, but there are things they couldn't do that now, but there are also things in the book which mean so much more now after all the argy-bargy we've had in the last few years um, oh, yeah. about what was going on in the 70s. Yes. And the, 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 and the couple, uh, I think the very sweet thing in the book, I don't want to reveal too much, but there is a very interesting couple in Bristol. Yeah, as a gay, um, a grown-up yes. gay couple who used us quite by and chance. And Eustace hasn't got the faintest friends. idea what's no. going on there. No, and they're like a fairy tale couple in a way. And not as his mother, actually, really. No, we don't give away too much. We don't give away too much. But no, there was the, the thing that, that really struck me when I started thinking back to what a 70s childhood was like was how incredibly innocent exactly. it was. Because we didn't have the internet. No. We had World About Us and we had Horizon. If you could, you know, that was about it. Um, and, the and, world and about us is a big thing. And if you were a boy, there would be a, you know, a terrible old well-thumbed copy of Health and Efficiency in the boys' mm. loo at school. And, mm. and, and women were a complete mystery to us if you went to an all-boys school and, and remained a mystery, really. I mean, one of the things I, I touch on is how when Eustace goes to this amazing cello course in Scotland, um, suddenly he meets girls yes. his own age because he hadn't met any. Really. Yes, and um, competent girls his own competent age, girls. Which is a Competent, confident yes. girls who are really scary yes. when and you're And of course, 12, who are... Um, that much older as girls tend to be at that yeah, age, yeah. you know, they're quite fearsome. I quite wised up, yes. 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 But it's, um, I'm noticing we're almost out of time well, now. Is there question. one more question? We might have time for you. Oh, oh, oh I'm afraid there. you were. Sorry, we can't see you over there. Buy a hardback and I'll answer it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll slide them. Um, I, I just wanted to say, I've read all your books and always loved them right from the very beginning, Thank but you I so thought much. that it. I'm groveling here. But with, with um, rough music, it was like your books just suddenly took off. Uh, and after that, they've, they've somehow been even better. Do, did you feel that that was a book that was Total a changing turning point. book? Total turning point in so many ways. I turned forward. Several things happened that year. It was 1998 or 1998, I started it. I fell in love with my husband, so I moved to the farm. I turned 40. Um, and also, crucially, I finally got a proper grown-up editor. Because before that, I'd had, I realise now, I realise looking back, I'd had editors who basically just said, oh, lovely, made a few changes and rubber-stamped the book. With that book, I finally got this amazing editor who was really shrewd and said, your trouble is you avoid the pain. I'm going to make you write about the pain. And she, she made me... Right, to be any good as a novelist, I think you have to be very self-aware become very self-aware and she woke, she was like a therapist she really woke me up to myself and she made me see how my natural instinct is to crack a joke rather than tell you the story that'll make you cry um and that novel rough music really burrows down and it's the first of my books which shamelessly takes my own nearest and dearest and examines them and i set out in that book to write about my the mystery that is my parents marriage um it was the first, I'll do it over and over again, I suspect, <laughs> in different, different ways. But it really burrowed down into them. And what I did there, unlike uh, the man in orange shirt, was to take their real characters. And they are in there. I, those portraits are them. But what I do is to give them a different plot. 
So I give my mother a lover, which she never had. I knew she wanted one, and I can <laughs> And actually, she, funnily enough, she loved that book because she said all, <laughs> all her friends read it. I was really worried. They were, she said, no, it's wonderful. They're all reading it and they're all looking at me and thinking, oh, I wonder. <laughs> she seems so well behaved. Who'd have thought it? So she got a lot of mileage out of it. Bless her. Now, there was a question here on the front. Would you just want to ask it? Can we get a microphone very quickly? I can make it the end. Oh, I can. Oh, yeah, here you go. It's just coming in. I looked at the. Hold it near your mouth, and they can hear that. Some of your paperbacks, and I see how Mr. Maupin likes them. I wonder whether you feel you're influenced by any of these people. Oh gosh, I was very influenced by Armistead when I when I started out. My two big influences were Iris Murdoch and Armistead. It's kind of kind of weird mixture, but I'd love to have had a dinner party with the two of them. (laughs) Would have been fun. Um, And I, I learned a lot from Armistead, not so much stylistically, but in the way he handles. He and I both like writing about things that other people are embarrassed to write about. So we write about sex, and we write about relationships in a really kind of uncomfortable way. And what I learned from Armistead is it's all about the tone. If you carry on writing about someone's love life in the same tone with which you would introduce their dog or their mother or their their garden, you lure the reader in. It's the tone that wins the reader's trust. And that's how you get people your grandmother's age to read books about, you know, sexual practices that might be a bit embarrassing. Do you and, you know, and they'll do it quite cheerfully. And it, it, so it, it's tone, I think. Armistead's tone, although Armistead writes quite naughty stuff, his tone is very old-fashioned and very, very approachable and polite, essentially polite. But do you, fi- do you think one of the reasons that you can write about embarrassing things is because you don't have children? Oh, I don't know. I have a lot of young relations. And that's I have not the same. It's not that's the same. not the same. No, okay, okay. But then my brother's children growing up actually spent a lot of time living with me, so I kind of had surrogate children not the same. when they Sorry, were difficult babe. teenagers. Sorry, oh, okay, <laughs> she's not going to let me off. You're the sexy uncle. No, that's I'll turn different. That, I'll, I'll turn that on its head. I think the reason, because I don't have children, I think it's left me much more readily in touch with my own childhood. Yeah. I think if I write believable children and teenagers, it's because I've never grown up. I've never had to. I've never had a child saying, you know, you're a boring grown-up. So that Peter Panny thing is Mm. very, very useful. But but no, I'm a a stranger. My publicist, George, could admit to this. I'm I'm a stranger to embarrassment. (laughs) And I I do have a... Because of choir school, I have a very loud voice. And poor George has to go on trains and things with me. And we were on a flyby flight this morning, and she was... (laughs) (laughs) I I do project rather well look we will embarrass you now by giving you an enormous round of applause for what you've done Patrick um, see there you are blushing blushing yeah I blush I'm blushing blushing. Um, Patrick I'm told Cor- blushing is a sure sign of, of heightened sexual, uh, sexual availability. In a re- <laughs> but if you don't want to be that available, way, you I'm can just still hot. buy the book. Um, I'll be taking Patrick over to the signing tent, which, as I say, is over in that direction there, and he'd be very happy to continue any of these conversations. But thank you for coming, and thank, thank you, you again, Patrick. Thank you. Thank you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.